This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chat. Today's topic is nutritional supplements, dietary patterns, and age-related macular degeneration. And we have a, a, just a fantastic guest today, uh, Dr. Emily Chu. She is uh, one of the top vision researchers at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Chu is a deputy director of the NEI, the National Eye Institute, which is one of the research centers at the NIH campus in, in Bethesda, Maryland. She is a past winner of the Helen Keller Prize for Vision Research, which, is, which many people consider the Nobel Prize of Vision, and it's a, an award that Bright Focus is happy to help uh, present every year. And earlier this month, Dr. Chu gave um, the, the major address at the, uh, na- at the nation's gathering of ophthalmologists. So it's, it's just a tremendous, um, tremendous opportunity to have Dr. Emily Chu today. Dr. Chu, thank you so much for joining us. And let's start off by telling us a little bit about what you do at the National Eye Institute. Thank you, Michael. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. I've been at National Eye Institute for almost three decades, and my primary goal is to help patients. So I'm a clinician uh, at heart, and I do see patients uh, usually about one or two days a week. But the rest of the time, I spend really looking at uh, research projects, uh, looking at especially clinical trials. I'm the chief of the clinical trials. Clinical trials is where we set up to test a treatment or a strategy or a test to see whether it works or not. And we toss the coin and, and put patients in one bin versus another to see whether the therapy or the test will be effective or not. So that's one of my primary goals. I do a lot of work in clinical trials in both macular degeneration as well as in diabetic retinopathy. And we also do a fair amount of mentoring because we have uh, young students, medical students who come, uh, as well as uh, physicians who've already finished their residency program are here to learn more about the eye. You know, we're super specialized, so the fellowship is at the back of the eye, the retina. So we, so it's a combination of doing scholarly work and research, providing care, and also providing um, guidance and mentorship for the young trainees coming up. Well, that's wonderful. What a what a great service. Sort of big picture. Um, why did you want to become involved in vision health and science? That's a very good question. I had set up, you know, in my mind that I'd become a pediatrician. I went to medical school, but it's interesting how role models are so important in how we choose our careers. I met a, a wonderful woman named Brenda Galley. Dr. Brenda Galley is a, a, a top researcher in retinoblastoma, which is an eye tumor that occurs in, in children. And I was a very young medical student, and what she did was so fantastic, and she really impressed on, upon me how important vision is and how important it is to do research. You could, we could treat patients one at a time and be very gratified by it, but to do research meant that we would be able to uh, affect many more people rather than just one at a time. So I took that to heart, and, and I really uh, valued her advice, and we're still good friends. So I think role models are really important, and I also realized that the you know, ophthalmology is a fantastic field. You know, we could do many things to help our patients, and we're learning, and the research is, is abundant and, and just very bright people in it. So it really attracts a really interesting people who are interested in helping people maintain their vision. Vision is really important because, uh, you know, your quality of life is important. People who, and, and on the other end, you know, mortality may be related somewhat in vision. People who, who have vision problems and who fall, for example, that 
it's all related in the cascade. So keeping the vision of our nation, of our people is so important because it's important for their general health. Yeah, I agree. And and to your point about the, the overall quality of life, it, sort of big picture, is vision loss, uh, in your experience, is vision loss an, an inevitable part of aging? Well, you could say it may be, but there are a lot of things you can correct. So as we get older, our arms are never long enough to read so that the muscles that control the, the lens that allow us to, you know, read things up close when you're really small, when you're a young child, you can read up to your nose and my parents would say, don't do that, it's bad for your eyes. But we're just jealous because we can't do that. Uh, so it's what we call presbyopia, the inability to read up close. So we have to wear reading glasses, so we adapt to that. Uh, almost everybody, if they live long enough, will develop some form of cataract. And cataract is the pacification of the lens inside the eye. And that increases over time and with age. Uh, and that would also decrease your vision as well. But as we know, cataract surgery is one of the most common things done. And it has really brought a lot of people great vision afterwards. So, so that, you know, these are correctable type of things. And of course, your refraction might change because your lens is changing and you might have to change your glasses. Those things are, are all very correctable types of vision loss. The ones that are more difficult are related to chronic diseases, such as glaucoma, which is, again, related to age. And if you're African-American, you may have a higher risk at a younger age and if you have a family history of it. Um, the other one, of course, is diabetic retinopathy, or diabetic eye disease. Diabetic eye disease can occur, uh, and, and about 30% of people with diabetes will actually have some form of retinopathy or, or eye disease. And that you know, is really quite treatable. And again, the importance is getting an eye exam, same as glaucoma, get an eye exam so you're checked out early as well as those with diabetes. And finally, what we're talking about macular generation, which is a chronic condition that affects really an increasing number of people who will have this disease. Uh, you know, by the time you were 80, uh, something like 30% of, of, of people, especially women, uh, white women, we may have that condition. So, so these are chronic conditions uh, that are somewhat preventable, but the other things I talked about are things that are correctable. So yes, aging is associated with some changes in the eye. But much of it is correctable, but then there are diseases that we really need to have a good handle on. And, and number one thing would be getting a good eye exam to make sure that you're, you're getting those checked out and some prevention can be given for some of these. Yeah, that, that's great advice. So, Dr. Chu, you mentioned the, the chronic um, diseases of the eye. Uh, it kind of, you know, linking that to your uh, your main area of research, lifestyle. How does diet and exercise um, impact or influence age-related vision diseases such as AMD? Well, I think AMD is a very good example where it can be affected by your lifestyle quite dramatically. People who smoke always have an increased risk of macular generation. AMD increases uh, almost like a dose response. The more you smoke, the more likely you're going to get macular generation. And luckily, that's coming down. So that risk factor has been really, I think, been uh, tremendously attacked by the press and, and, and general health to, to reduce it for not only for eyes, but for your, for your heart, for blood pressure, and everything else. So diet is really an interesting aspect of this. Um, we didn't, you know, we did a nutritional trial, but, but looking at the diets from this trial, we can see that people who eat a lot of green leafy vegetables uh, that, that contain a, a, a vitamin called lutein and zeaxanthin, that they have a lower risk of having macular generation. And people who eat fish 
have a lower risk of macular degeneration. And this was borne out by further studies that we've recently done looking at the dietary habits of people, almost 8,000 people we looked at and seeing what happens over a period of time, five to 10 years later, uh, it seemed like people who ate the, what we call the Mediterranean diet, which is full of really good amounts of vegetables, legumes, um, we have good uh, wheat, uh, uh, grains rather, and and um, olive oil rather than the, the sort of fatty acids, and, and really uh, low on red meat, but high moderate amount on fish and, and chicken, uh, that there was a protective effect. So people who ate good Mediterranean diet had a, almost 25 to 30% reduced risk of having macular generation. And then specifically, the green leafy vegetables and the fish really were very important. Wow, that, that's very interesting. It seems like that runs counter to a lot of diets uh, here in the United States. Unfortunately, that's so true. And, you know, we, we have a study called the N. Haynes National Health and Nutritional Examination Study that really monitors the, sort of the dietary health of our, our nation. And it looks like people just don't cook as much. You know, Grandma used to do all the green leafy vegetables, and nobody's eating collard greens and kale and things like that, although kale is making a comeback. It's a superfood. But, but it's quite true that I think in this busy world, people are not cooking as much and not getting all the nutrition that they really need. Yeah. You know, given those challenges, if, if someone um, has not had a vision-healthy diet up to uh, whatever whatever their age they are currently at, is it too late to start now? No, it's never too late. In our studies, when we looked at patients who already have the disease and people who have sort of early forms of disease, we find that even if they eat a good diet over the next five to ten years, there were reductions. So, so it's never too late. I, I think you know, I think your cardiologist would be very happy to say to you, you, you should be doing that for your heart and other things and cancer as well. So all in all, it's really important to have a good diet, and it's never too late. You can start now, even though you've been diagnosed with it, it's important to maintain that good diet. And uh, uh, listeners to previous Bright Focus chats have heard us talk about um, AREDS, A-R-E-D-S, uh, you know, with, with with a number of our prior, prior guests. And, and so today we, we have the opportunity to hear... Uh, firsthand um, about ARID. So, so Dr. Chu, could you tell us a little bit about the research, you know, what, what led you to, um, I don't know if discover is the right word, uh, recommend uh, the ARIDS formula? So ARID starts, uh, really stands for age-related eye disease studies. So ARIDS is sort of the acronym we use for it. Uh, this was started in 1992. We had really very little data looking at the natural history of the conditions for macrogeneration as well as for cataracts. So this was designed mainly to look at the natural history and sort of the risk factors associated with progression of disease, what makes it worse, and et cetera. And during the course of the study, that was when a lot of studies were being done for, with nutrition for cardiovascular health and also for cancer. And there's big studies on vitamin E, you know, uh, vitamin, vitamin D more recently, uh, beta carotene. So when we looked at the, the data, we thought, well, you know, maybe there's, especially for cataract, there seemed to be that diet might be important. We sort of had hints that diet might be important. So we put together this, what was then a really a popular type of uh, formulation that was being tested for other diseases. Uh, and we came up with vitamin C, as half a gram, which is a pretty large dose, vitamin E, 400, milligram, 400 um, international units, and beta carotene, 50 milligrams. And there was a small study done at Utah looking at the, the role of zinc. Uh, zinc was given mainly because it's very high in the eye, and that was the main reason. 
And so this researcher used the zinc in very high doses and to really combat or, or reduce any risk of having zinc can cause an anemia because zinc could, could take over and people can become anemic to it. So they add copper because zinc competes with the copper. So we actually add zinc and copper to it. Um, you know, we thought this would be really important perhaps for cataract, but much to our surprise, at the end of the study, uh, after at least average about six and a half years, we found patients who had at least what we call intermediate AMD. In other words, they've had signs of disease, not people who don't have AMD. But there was a 25% reduction in the risk of progressing to the more vision-threatening type, people with the wet form or the dry form macrogeneration. So 25% is not a cure. It's not huge, but it's a modest effect. That's very important because this is a common condition. If you have heart disease, even a 10% reduction would be very significant. So here, a 25% reduction can reduce the number of people from going to late disease and requiring injections and that sort of thing. So that's what the ARIS formula came from was 1992, 2001, when we stopped the study and realized that this was beneficial. We followed patients for two, another five years, maybe because this is like watching your grass grow. It's a very, very slow condition. We want to be able to quantify and look over time what happens. And even at 10 years when we stopped the study, we still saw beneficial effect that patients who were originally assigned to the treatment had a better outcome than those who did not. So there was a five-year lag, but we still found that patients really did well with this. So this has become the standard of therapy until we did this, another study. Uh, which was ARIDS-2. Should we talk about a little bit ARIDS-2 a little bit, Michael? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks. Okay. ARIDS-2 is, um, again, Aged Eye Disease Study 2, so it's a sequel to our ARIDS. And we were interested in doing that because at the time when we did ARIDS, we knew that lutein c xanthine was important, but it was not commercially available. Uh, we could only do beta-carotene, which was a close cousin to it. But beta-carotene was found to increase the risk of lung cancer in two other studies that were supported by NIH, National Institutes of Health. Uh, we looked at uh, patients who were at smokers in both Finland and also across the United States. And giving beta-carotene actually increased the risk of lung cancer by about 28%. And people were actually had a higher rate of, of death as well. So that certainly is not a good thing. And these are all in smokers. So at the time of our study, we were very concerned. And we actually took patients off of it. And, and we did a, a number of assignments of the treatment uh, in the end, we've decided the ARIT supplement was not good for, for smokers. So we wanted to see whether we could replace beta-carotene. So lutein cisanthine was the ideal, uh, ideal uh, vitamin for us to, to work with. And there was also, as you heard, the importance of fish. If you eat fish, you had less macrogeneration. So we thought, well, maybe it's omega-3, omega-3 found in fish. So ARIT-2 actually added the lutein cisanthine uh, and the omega-3 to the ARIDS supplement. And we looked directly between beta-carotene and lutein, et cetera. And so what did we find? In the end, after another about five-year study, about 4,000 participants, we found that the, the new formulation, which now has lutein cisanthine, because we found at, during this study, ARIDS-2, that it also had an incremental uh, effect. It, it improved the final effects of the ARIDS supplement and what's more important is that we found that beta-carotene, even in our study, that was given to people who were no longer smoking, uh, that we actually increased the risk of lung cancer, doubled the risk of lung cancer in our ARIDS too. And that, were, that was mostly found in patients who were 
former smoker. So even if you're a former smoker, the risk is somewhat there. So for a good reason, we took away the beta carotene and put lutein cysteine. Now, omega-3 was another story. Uh, we were expecting this to be great because you eat fish, it should be good. Well, we found that it was neither harmful or beneficial. It did not have an effect in any way. And that's been true probably across the board for omega-3 for a number of other diseases, you know, for cognitive function, uh, for cardiovascular disease. We found that omega-3 did not have that initial shine that we thought it would be really important. So we did not add omega-3 to to the uh, to the actual formulation. So ARITS2 now has beta, uh, does not have beta carotene, has vitamin C, vitamin E, lutein, cysteine, and zinc. Uh, so it's interesting that even though you eat fish and fish is important, omega-3 was not important. So that was the that was our legacy of ARITS2, which I think really helped to contribute yeah. uh, to even a better formulation. Well, that, that's great. It's great to hear this from the uh, from the original source. So, Dr. Chu, um, in terms of the AREDs, can someone take AREDs proactively to avoid getting AMD? Well, this is really what we call secondary prevention. We really don't give it to people who don't have macular degeneration. So often, you know, the children of folks who are affected would say, you know, my parents have terrible macular degeneration. Shouldn't I be taking this? And the answer is actually no, because we don't know the effects on such people. Uh, and mainly because in our original study, we looked at people who have very early macular degeneration. It made no difference. It's only when you have an intermediate form, which is, which is sort of signified by having what we call large drusen. So your doctor will be able to look in and say whether you should have it or not. But before that, it really doesn't make any difference. So truly, you have to have sort of an intermediate stage before it makes any difference. So it is important to get that eye exam and to speak that, have that conversation with your doctor before you start anything on that. That's great. And, and to that point, is it, a, cho is it a, a choice, a reasonable choice, if someone wanted to get those vitamins through their food or through supplements? Is, it, is, that, a, is that an either or, or is there a, do you have a preference? Well, there's no question that important to have a good diet. That's really important. But the supplements really cannot be taken through the foods. I mean, to get the amount of vitamin C, you have to eat at least more than a dozen oranges, which no, nobody does a day. Uh, the, the vitamin E would be like a whole room full of wheat germs, so that's harder to manage. So these are really large doses, making it very difficult uh, to obtain through the diet. But that doesn't lessen the importance of having a good diet. That's, you know, the Mediterranean diet we talked about, being high in vegetables and nuts and, and all the things. So, so it's important to eat well, but the supplements are required. You, you cannot just purely eat that much to, to make up for that, for those supplements. No, that, that's, uh, I think we're all picturing the visuals of eating a dozen oranges a day, and, and we will... Uh, we, will, yes. we won't go. We won't go down that road. Um, I understand you were recently. Uh, you led a, a a study about whether calcium increases the risk of macular degeneration. Can you tell us what you found? Yes. So, you know, we were. We were spurred on to doing this study because other studies suggested that maybe calcium might be harmful. Uh, and, we, and many people are on calcium. I, I think 80% of our women and the participants were on calcium, and much fewer men are. And that's because of bone health. People have been taking that for a long time. 
So we took this opportunity to use our data to look and see whether calcium would be harmful. We did what we call a post hoc analysis. That means we finished a study, we hadn't planned on doing these analyses at all, and then something came up and we decided to use it. So this is, these are like secondary analyses that we've looked at. Uh, and again, it's not a clinical trial. We didn't flip the coin and say, you take this and, and you take this. So when you take calcium, it may somebody, there may be different people taking calcium than people who don't take calcium. People, we know for sure people who take calcium have a better diet, for example. They actually have a higher intake of lutein and zeaxanthine. So we can't make a blanket statement saying calcium does this because we found this. So this is what we found. We found that people who had either taken supplements at the baseline or actually have a higher intake in their diet, but there was a less risk of having the late macular degeneration, especially the wet form. Um, so does that mean we use it as a treatment, say calcium to everybody? The answer is no. We don't We don't have make recommendations, mainly because of the way that the study is designed. It's not a clinical trial. We know just by observing people. And just as I said, you know, people who eat calcium might actually have a higher intake of other things. So, again, this whole idea that, you know, healthy diets and things come in. So I think what it, this study really does is delay anyone's fears that, Taking calcium for their osteoporosis would make their macular degeneration worse. We don't think that's the case. We think that you're safe to take it, uh, and you would be able to take it without harming yourself in terms of your eyes. Would we ever do a clinical trial on this to see whether calcium helps? I think it's unlikely because there's so many people who are on it, and they need it for other reasons. So if you need to have calcium for other reasons, don't feel bad about taking it. It's not going to harm your eyes and especially if you have macular degeneration. So people should feel really free to, to take their medical advice about taking calcium and not be concerned about the macular degeneration worsening with that. Well, thank you. That's very reassuring for uh, for our listeners. And we're starting to get a few questions in about supplements. And Dr. Chu, I think a lot of people may find the supplement aisle at a supermarket or at their uh, at a pharmacy to be a little, little overwhelming um, and sometimes kind of expensive. Um, so, you know, we had a, a, a questioner asking about something called the balance of nature uh, formula supplements, and how should one find, so I guess a few questions here, how should one find the ARIDS 2 on their pharmacy shelf, and then also, are there ways to to bring down the, the costs to, to make this, you know, more of a long-term possibility for people? Well, I don't know if people know. If you're part of the VA, the VA actually provides it for free, and they provide the, the real thing, the ARITS to supplement that that we test it. So, if you serve the if you serve the government, you can belong to the VA. You can get that for free. Uh, so that's one thing. And there are many knockouts. There are different things they're called, and and it's very confusing. I find it confusing myself when I walk down the aisle. So we I always say look for the large bowl A R E D S two. Um, and, you know, right on the cover, not just somewhere in small, in small print saying that this might be an ARIS-2, but, but that, that we know we trust because we know that's been, that's been made to the specifications that we tested. Uh, so that's one thing that I always tell my patients to look for. And there are other, there are other types like, you know, other names and other things, but, but unless they have that number or that lettering, I find that, that they may be getting something else instead. That's not exactly what we tested. As far as cost is concerned, I think there are a lot of big box places like Walmart and you know, CVS and and uh, even Costco. They do carry you know big brands, so if you can look for that, I know some of the some of the pharma companies actually give up coupons that 
that are quite um, uh, that are that help quite a bit, and I think there even there's even a program where you can actually write to and, and get some help with it. But obviously, I work for the government, so I don't really know. You know, I don't have any recommendations other than look out for the, for what you can with the, with the sales and things. Uh, I have no control over that. I know that in England, they're trying to uh, trying to convince their healthcare system to pay for it. Certainly, prevention is a lot easier than trying to treat at the other end. But we're not there yet. But but again, I just to emphasize: if you work, you know, if you have any association with the VA, you're eligible for the VA. They definitely give it to you for free there. Well, great. This is very, very helpful suggestions. And we had a questioner, um, you know, kind of staying on supplements for another moment, wondering: is there is there a danger to taking too many of these of these supplements that uh, you know in, in these vitamins that you mentioned? Well, you know, the the dose we we're, we're giving, and and we wouldn't go beyond what we recommend, which is on the label and everything. Uh, and 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 I know Michael's going to give it to you in a in a form of a, a pamphlet or um, or some information. We don't think it's unsafe because certainly we've followed patients for 10 years in ERITS-1 and ERITS-2 and the side effects are really quite minimal. So can you take one vitamin that's too much? Yes, but you know, like for example, beta-carotene causes a lot of yellowing of the, of the skin and, and uh, there's concerns about zinc and other things, but we really haven't found anything that's been bad at all. Vitamin, you know, vitamin E at one point was thought to be harmful for people with cardiovascular disease. Again, that hasn't really shown up and we've looked at those our data very carefully with the with the with the trials, seeing people on and on or off of it, and we didn't really find anything major. Uh, I think the one thing we found was in zinc. We found patients who took higher doses of zinc or the doses of zinc had an increased risk for, especially for men, um, having an increase in their in the prostate. But it was not prostate cancer or anything, but the prostate was enlarged. But other than that, we really did not find anything. Uh, in terms of multivitamins, I know people take it, but there's been very little data to suggest that that is really that important. So in our studies, we gave multivitamins because people were going to take them. We want to control that, so we gave them free vitamin multivitamins with our with our um, actual ERITS formulation. We found no difference with or without the 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 the, the actual um, multivitamins. So we think it's safe to take with it, um, and that's really about the about all we can say from our data. Yeah. Well, thank you. You mentioned, let's talk about clinical trials for a moment. You mentioned uh, um, at the beginning that you helped lead clinical trials, and you've mentioned some of the results that, that you and others have learned from clinical trials. I, you know, why should, you know, I think a lot of people may have some uh, concerns or uh, not know too much about clinical trials. I was wondering, a couple of questions. Why should someone consider volunteering in a, in a clinical trial? And what are some questions that, that people should um, should talk through with, with their doctor about, about clinical trials? Well, clinical trials um, is, you know, people who come to clinical trials are often very altruistic because sometimes there's nothing that would really benefit them in the end. But I think people always benefit because they're being watched very carefully in the clinical trial. You're being monitored, uh, and 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 most of my patients come in are very altruistic, would like to learn for themselves, but not so much for themselves, but for the next generation, whether it be their own children or other people in the world. So, so clinical trials are essential for us to understand whether treatment works or not. You know, I could do those studies I talk about where I look at the calcium, where you take it or not, but it doesn't doesn't control for other 
other aspects that make people different. So a clinical trial is where you flip the coin and you one person gets this, another person gets that. And, and that flipping of the coin is the most important feature of the clinical trial. It balances everything in life between the two groups so that you're really comparing that particular element that you're looking for. You know, ERITS-1, we, we, you know, people without ERITS-1 and with ERITS-1, so we're, we're quite certain. And when we look at the demographics, they're almost identical in age. They're almost the same uh, proportion, uh, you know, of, of gender and uh, and race and everything else. And, and, and probably their health habits, whether they eat this way or that way, they're well balanced on both sides. And then you can really make a statement of whether that treatment works or not. So only with a clinical trial can you do that. Why would you want to actually be in a study? Well, number one is I think the, the close monitoring you get. Uh, sometimes it, it, you, know, you have to balance the risks. So when you talk to a doctor about a trial, you want to see what the risks are compared to the, the, the benefits. If the risks far outweigh that, then you might be a little weary about it. But for most clinical trials, that's really balanced well before it gets to you. Uh, we have what we call institutional review boards which are on the side of the patient. They advocate for the patient. They want to make sure everything is safe before you come on to that. Uh, and, but it's the, it's the power of that study that really allows us to decide whether treatment is good or not. And without our patients, we really can't not do that. So I'm always grateful to the thousands of patients who dedicate their time to the ERITS-1 and ERITS-2 and other studies that we do. Uh, they truly are very altruistic. Um, I think most of them have enjoyed being in the study because they learn a lot about the disease, they learn a lot about what happens, and they're often the first to know. And I'm in another study where the treatment was given and it looks like it may be promising. The people who are in the study may be getting it for free. So, so there are some benefits, but they're not always benefits. You have to think of it that it, there may be something for me or they may not. So, so it takes very special people to do this, and, and we're always grateful for people who will join our clinical trials. Great, that was very, very informative. We'll have time for one quick, one more uh, listener question on ARADS, then we'll turn to some Dr. Chu for some concluding remarks. We have a, a caller that's wondering: Is there any benefit uh, or difference between taking a chewable ARADS two um, as opposed to uh, uh, other forms of ARADS two? We believe they're quite they're quite similar. We believe that the blood the blood levels are very similar. Either you swallow it as a as a capsule or take it as a as, as chewing, uh, you know, like a gummy bear type of thing. Mainly because, you know, these are fairly large and it's hard for people who, who have, you know, who are on an age to swallow so many pills and, and that's, we don't think there's any difference. They, they should be really sure that they could get the same from either the capsule or the chewable form. Well, great, thank you. Yes, uh, Dr. Chu, we'd like, I'd like to conclude today just kind of some uh, you know, kind of bigger, bigger uh, thoughts or observations you've had in, in your in your time as a as a researcher and a clinician. Um, as we head into the year 2020, I think uh, that's a that's a nice uh, a nice hook to to get people better educated on vision health. Uh, in your experience, what could do that? What do you wish people knew more or did more about their vision health, or what, what would help people take better care of this part of their own health? I think it's important that they understand that an eye exam is a regular eye exam is really important for people who are certain age and people who have diabetes, for example, should have an eye exam on at least on a yearly basis. People who have family history of diseases might want to be seen a little earlier, but that eye exam can pick out a great deal that you know if you can treat things earlier on rather than waiting. 
until something bad happens. It's so much better. And 2020 is coming up, so that's a you know it's a very auspicious year. <laughs> we really have to educate our our our, our population. You know that that there are things that they can do for themselves, and and the policy of of you know, importance and of 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 health style lifestyle healthy lifestyles that's important. Uh, eating good diet is really important, and then having that eye exam would really just help so much to, for the nation. Um, and I know, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about is is refractive error. People who need glasses, I know most of them don't even realize they need glasses. Um, so having that checked, I know schools check the vision and things like that. But as you get older, uh, I think it's essential to, to do all those things to to keep yourself in good eye health uh, and and to keep up your quality of life. Great. And sort of last question as you as we head into what you termed uh, the auspicious year 2020. Are you hopeful for the future of AMD prevention and treatment? Oh, I'm very hopeful. I think I'm hoping we can get some sort of more primary prevention things that would prevent the earlier diseases from progressing. We're trying to work through that. We're doing genetic testing, really for research, not so much for care, because we believe that research for care is still difficult because people who um, who have certain genes may not actually develop the disease because of the other influences of lifestyle and diet, et cetera. So it's not very reliable. But the genetic testing will help us uh, in research polls to figure out what might be important for different pathways that the disease may occur. Uh, and we're all in the era of big data. So big data means um, artificial intelligence, so-called deep learning, where you can throw things and just throw examples and not give them any instructions. But by teaching them with examples, they can more accurately diagnose and, and even predict prognosis of disease. So I'm very hopeful that the future is going to be very bright for us, uh, both for research and hopefully for from further better medical care of our patients. Great. I couldn't, couldn't think of a better way to end our our conversation today. And, and um, you know, Dr. Chu, thank you for being so generous with your time. I think it was a great opportunity for our listeners to hear from one of the, the top eye researchers at, at the National Institutes of Health and your, your work at the National Eye Institute. And just want to thank you very much. We will have our, re, our final Bright Focus Chat of the Year, November 20th. That's the, uh, the week before Thanksgiving, so Wednesday, November 20th. And um, Again, Dr. Chu, on behalf of, of Bright Focus Foundation and the several hundred listeners uh, that have been live on the call today, I just want to thank you very much for, for being with us, and, and most importantly, thank you for, for what you've dedicated your life to. Well, thank you for having me. It's always an honor to speak to you and, and to, listen, and to all, the, all the listeners out there. Thank you for your attention. All right. This concludes our Bright Focus chat. Thank you. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.